0: Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Welcome back to the Your Family Dog podcast. I'm Tina Spring, and I'm joined today by my Smart and Pretty co-host, Julie Fudge-Smith. And today we are over the moon excited to bring on Melinda Demartini-Price, who is going to talk to us today about a topic that impacts a ton of families and a ton of dogs, um, separation anxiety and dogs, and how um that can sometimes be couched in by the dog training world is like some insurmountable thing, and that it's not, it's a mission possible. So, as is typical for our podcast, I got to introduce Melena and we're so glad you're here. And Julie will ask the first question. Yes,
1: Milena, we're so excited to have you on board because this is an issue I think I run into almost as often as is loose lead walking problems. So um, I guess one of the things that I would really like to have is a good definition of separation anxiety. That's one of the things people will say, oh, my dog has separation anxiety. And I'm like, maybe, maybe not. It could be we have a confinement anxiety. It could be that we have something else going on. It just seems to be a catch all phrase. So I think it's probably good for us to start with a definition. So if you could give us a definition of separation anxiety, that would probably be a great beginning.
2: I love that as a beginning point. And thank you for that lovely introduction. And thank you for having me. Um, you are absolutely right that separation anxiety, the term it, uh, itself, has become a bit of a catch-all or rather an umbrella term. And in many ways, it is um, a misnomer. Um, quite frankly, we use the, the term separation anxiety all the time because it's become sort of familiar in, in the, the lexicon and language uh, out there, Right. But what we are really talking about are separation-related behavior problems, okay? And what that means is when we have dogs who are experiencing true fear, panic, terror, a phobia, if you will, of alone time. And as a result of that fear, they are displaying symptoms that can range dramatically from extreme vocalization to destruction to elimination. Those are the three big ones that we often hear of. But even dogs that are sort of pacing, panting, drooling um, would fall into this category. And one of the reasons why I think separation-related behavior problems are surprisingly underrepresented is that there are a lot of dogs that if no one hears the vocalization, if there is no destruction evident and there's no you know p- a little pile of a gift left behind, then it's being it's 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 not being recognized as as occurring. So really we're talking about that true phobia of alone time. And by definition of a phobia. It is irrational to those that are not experiencing it, but very real to those that are. So in this case, the dog. And and I mention that simply because it just makes so much sense to us as, as an average pet parent to say, but I always come back. What what why is my dog freaking out? Right. But phobias really are irrational. Think about people that are terrified of flying on an airplane if we tell them, Oh, you're more likely to get injured in some sort of a car incident, that doesn't help their, their tremendous fear, right? It just doesn't. And that, this is that same sort of uh, a situation.
1: Thank you for that definition. I think that's really helpful. The idea of of couching it in terms of behavior as opposed to a a laboral. Correct. Um, So one of the things that, um, I also found interesting that you said is that how much of it is perhaps missed, that um, if it's not severe, we don't notice it, and uh, that it it could be really difficult for the dog, even though we're not realizing it. So, um, Tina, you have your hand up. You have a question?
0: Yes, because I'm trying to get better about not interrupting you. It's an awful (laughs) habit I have. So I'm trying to give you a signal that I have a question or a comment.
1: All right. Well, for those of you, since this is not visual, this is auditory, Tina has a little hand that pops up when she has a question. So I have a feeling it's gonna be kind of like me feeling like there's a cheerleader out there raising your hands. Hi. <laughs> It'll be um, like the okay. way. That's right. So I guess now that we have a definition of separation anxiety, um, one of the things that um I think it's important to understand and for owners to understand is that while it's fixable, it's not quick. So What if when you have somebody who comes to you, one who has a dog with separation anxiety, what are the first few steps that you do
2: to get this process started? So the most important beginning point is to determine where or when. That dog's panic point is, and and we often talk about the dog's threshold. Um, but let's just think about it in a little bit more familiar terms. At what point in time do they start to show indications that they are becoming concerned, which will escalate from from you know just that moment of recognition when someone is leaving. Can escalate quickly to complete and utter you know a- aversive anxiety right uh, and so we want to be able to determine where is that point is it is it five minutes? is it five seconds it can be it will be very different for every dog and one thing I want to point out. People often say, oh, well, so you mean when the dog starts vocalizing? Actually, no. Um, there are so many precursors that we can observe prior to full-blown terror and panic of howling and, and destroying things, etc., cetera, Right. And so, getting getting that owner to understand how to read the dog's body language and discern those early early signs of, you know, lip licking or or hyper vigilance or you know I just, those sorts I really of, of behaviors appreciate that because owners, will help us. They don't, and then we always
1: start, they see it, beneath but they that don't recognize. It. I, be, I think they begin to see some of these behaviors in their dog. Um, for example, I was working with a German Shepherd yesterday, and he gets when he gets excited, he gets puffy lips. And the owner had noticed that about him. He just had no concept of what that might have meant in his dog.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of the reasons I would say that having a dog with separation anxiety and embarking on a training protocol, really, we're best served to work with a specialist, whether that be a, um, an expert trainer, whether that be a, a vet or a vet behaviorist, or The combination of all three, quite frankly, um, because it does take a while for us as, you know, average owners to recognize some of these early indications of distress. And and I'll tell you a quick story about that. You know, I've been working um, exclusively with separation anxiety for 21 years now. And uh, I know, <laughs> how did that happen so fast? And um, but around the 10 year mark, um, when I had been practicing for quite some time, uh, I adopted my current little dog, Teeny Martini, And um, she had, you know, the, literally the day that I brought her home, she was one of those dogs that. The sun, the moon, the stars all revolved around my head, and there was no appeasing her if I were to walk away or leave. And it taught me such a humbling lesson about how much more difficult it is to observe and understand and and interpret your own dog's behavior. As a clinician and as someone that's practicing in the field, right, I can help people and observe their dogs behavior without those the that that fog that we get because it's it's our own little little one you know our own baby uh and so I do think it's important to 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 get that help to be able to observe so that you can proceed with a training protocol that is not only systematic, but is, is efficient and effective so that it's not years before you can leave your dog alone. It's,
0: you know, months or so, you know, something of that nature. Do you separate out that situation, like for Teeny, where it was all about mama, right? What's, what's Melena doing versus a dog who just doesn't want to be like needs a human there? Doesn't really matter which human, any human will do, but I need a human. Are those different things?
2: They are to an extent. However, here's the great news about that. Um, the, there's there's a bit of a spectrum, right? So we don't want. We talked just in the beginning about don't you know labeling, right? I don't want to label a dog as being you know clinically over here with separation anxiety or not clinically over there with just a warm body will do right there's usually the dog falls somewhere along that continuum and the good news is that the process of systematic desensitization and behavior modification for separation related problems is is basically identical in both of those situations, even on the far ends of the spectrum. But but it can be more challenging when it's mama only dogs, uh, and our goal with those dogs is to expand the circle, right? So I know you love mama only, but let's get you to love Auntie Sally and Uncle Joe as well, so that those can be our new warm bodies uh, over time, right? Uh, and, you know, we know if a dog can become that sort of glommed on to one individual, we've got incredible tools to help them fall in love with one or two or three or ten more individuals, right? So, it just uh, it just takes a little time, and fortunately, it's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, You know, all the greatest and most wonderful things start to come from Auntie Sally. And before you know it, Auntie Sally is, is just as good as Mama.
1: these anti-anxiety medications. So I was hoping you could address that a little bit. And I don't know if you have found this, but sometimes I feel like when I'm talking to owners about their dogs who have real, you know, genuine anxiety, and I'm suggesting that they talk to their vet about medication, they sometimes feel as though they failed their dog somehow by giving them medication. And I was kind of hoping maybe you could address how important medication is and why it's that important,
2: yeah, boy. If anybody listening to this takes but one thing away, you have not failed your dog. you have not and in in my personal sort of rather biased opinion, I think if there were ever a way to fail our dogs is it would be to not get them the help they need this is a welfare issue. These dogs are suffering. And um, we talk about it being a behavioral emergency, right? And, you know, if, if your dog uh, broke his leg, we would get him into the emergency care, right? And this is, this is absolutely just as emergent as many of the medical issues that we see. Unfortunately, anxiety, stress, Uh, etc. not only affects the animal psychologically, but also physiologically. It's amazing how many of our separation anxiety dogs started with us with tons of, let's say, GI distress and itchy skin and this and that. And as we progress and get them through their anxiety, all of those external and physical factors uh, that seem to be overwhelming start to fall away. And we know this, right? How many human beings are riddled with ulcers or what have you based on their stress? So I do feel very strongly that medication is something to discuss with your vet or a vet behaviorist. I want to make sure people do also understand when we are talking about anti-anxiety medications, we are not talking about giving the dog something to just dope them up. We're not talking about giving the dog something that will change their personality uh, or make them, you know, listless or what have you. Um, Quite frankly, if the medication used with separation anxiety is causing a a dramatic change in personality or a lot of, uh, um, you know, tiredness or something like that, it's, it's typically not the right medication. And that should be something that's discussed with the vet. There is a there's a host of not only individual meds that are approved by the FDA for use with separation anxiety, but there are also Adjunct medications and sort of mixtures of sort of cocktails, if you will, um, that will best serve the individual dog. So there is some trial and error to be had um, to make sure that the whatever medication is prescribed by the vet or vet behaviorist is the ideal medication for that dog. We want the dog to be able to have the best quality of life possible and chronic distress and anxiety Is debilitating. It really is. Um, So it's important.
0: Well, it's not like anyone hasn't recognized that through a major pandemic. (laughs) One one of the things that I will say is suddenly my customers are much more willing to understand the effects of chronic stress um, and that maybe it changes how they move through the world. And suddenly they're much more empathetic about their dog that worries about stuff. I'm like, Right. (laughs) Because it doesn't, that worry doesn't necessarily make the learning easier.
2: (laughs) Well, and it's really important that what you just said, I mean, we know very, very strongly from the research that anxiety inhibits learning, right? And that's basically what you just alluded to there. And if we know that anxiety inhibits learning and our goal is to help the dog learn that alone time is safe, but they're unable to learn because of this overriding anxiety, we are we are just spinning our wheels. And so um, just, you know, as a reminder to people, the medications cannot and do not, at least as of today's date, we don't have a single medication that just fixes separation anxiety in and of itself. It has to be concurrent use with behavior modification. And the medication is intended to sort of gain purchase on that anxiety enough that it's not um, inhibiting the learning process, right? Uh, You know, I've I've been asked before, oh, so it's just so that you can get through the process quicker. And, you know, no. That's actually not that's actually not no. true, I mean certainly we want to accelerate the the training process the but but that's simply for the benefit of the dog and the welfare of the animal, right so I think it's very important
0: but it's not though because it's also to the benefit and welfare of the family living with that animal because when when you have a dog living under this level of stress, that will absolutely squeeze a family's brain until jujubes come out, right? Coming home to a dog who's freaking out all the time or is eliminating in your house and you have a mess every time you come home, even if it was that you went to the mailbox or being threatened with being evicted because your dog is making noise during the day because everyone is doing Zoom from home in an apartment complex now becomes a really big problem. And, and I'll say as a trainer, my heart breaks every time somebody calls me and says, you need to fix this right now for free immediately. It's got to stop. I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm not a wizard. Like I'm good, but like there, there is no quick fix for this. It doesn't mean that it's impossible and it's not impossible. But it's also not going to, generally speaking, be super fast. So can you speak to that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the first things that I think
2: anybody and everybody needs to realize, whether it is about separation anxiety or other fears or other behavior issues, is that, you know, we live in a society where we're used to instant gratification, and we want these sort of instant dopamine hits all the time. Right. And uh, and but guess what? Dogs are still on sort of biological speed. They, they haven't caught up to the 21st century with, you know, being able to click a button and have anything and everything you want delivered to your door within a few hours type of thing. Right. So it's important. But that's really easy to say. It's important that, you know, everyone understands that it's a slow process. Uh, But that's really easy to say, and I think one of the things that I spend a lot of time doing is counseling our clients to learn how to celebrate the small wins and realize that those small wins are not actually small at all. If you have a dog that when you started your behavior modification protocol couldn't be left alone for five seconds and in a handful of training sessions you're at 5 minutes you can you have two options you can look at it in the light of oh it's only 5 minutes this is so dumb it's not working or you can really celebrate the fact that you have gone huge percentage leaps in and now with that 5 minute absence you are creating a foundation that will allow you to get to then 20 and then 40 and then hours right it's so so important to realize that even though it's a slow process it is actually you know quite rapid in in getting these these chunks of of improvement along the way and that having that that ability to celebrate those wins having that not only empathy for your dog empathy for yourself uh, and, and patience and, and kindness throughout um, is is one of the key elements of getting through these protocols.
1: Would you also say, too, that once you start making progress, that the growth is is more logarithmic, it's not linear, that you start out slowly, and then as the dog begins to understand that things are okay, then your growth starts going much more quickly. So I think that we have to remind our owners that the real patience resides in the beginning, as we under, as we are teaching our dogs that it's that they're safe, that the world is safe, and they're safe, and this is cool, and you're going to be okay. But that takes time to trust. But as long as you begin to trust it, and like okay, um, I I I was fine for a minute, and now I'm fine for five minutes, maybe I'll be fine for ten. You know, I think that it kind of works that way. I remember when I was uh, quitting smoking. And, um, there would be times where I would think to myself, um, okay, do I need a cigarette this morning? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Okay. So do I need a cigarette this hour? Probably. Do I need a cigarette in the next 15 minutes? Most likely. Yes. Do I need an, do I need a, you know, a cigarette in the next five minutes? Could. How about the next minute? Do I need one this instant? No, I don't. And I built well, yeah, almost 40 years of non-smoking on an instant at a time, and so I think sometimes we need to understand that we have to help our dogs begin to put those
2: instances together. One hundred percent, and I love that as an example. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to use that in an upcoming book of, of or something because absolutely, you may, you may, you
1: can use all of my vices. I also quit drinking in the same way, so. <laughs> now if I could only you know quit being such a snot that would bring, you know do I need to be snotty this minute Um,
0: come on don't quit everything I I, I don't know right don't quit all the things that make you interesting
1: (laughs) just all the things that make me a little sociopathic we'll quit those
0: okay quit Quit the throttling do I have to throttle this instant so one thing I would like you to talk about Milena is how expensive greediness, I call it being greedy. It's not really being greedy, but when, as um, the person working with the dog, how expensive the errors are when we push it too far, too fast. Cause I find that this is true, not just on separation anxiety. It's true on everything. It's not a, oh, we made a mistake. And now we start back, like we move back one step. Cases when we're talking about fear and anxiety, my experience is we start back further than where we started. And it's really, it can be very much a sticky wicket to explain to a family like, okay, those errors, like letting that dog have a bad experience is so expensive. It is just best avoided. Oh, So important to discuss.
2: Um, one of the things that we have to think about, and this is true for a lot of fear uh, and anxiety type behaviors, I like to couch it as though we're creating a contract with the dog. Okay. So we're going to metaphorically shake the dog's paw as and- Right. And we're gonna and guess what? We're gonna have us our side of the contract, but the dog has their side of the contract too. You know, any good contract goes goes in two directions. So our side of the contract is I will never leave you alone for longer than you can handle. Right? And I'm not gonna put you in a situation that you're going to be terrified and that that we're gonna unravel any good training that we're and in progress that we're making. Guess what though? The dog is going to uphold their side. The dog can say, a little anthropomorphic, I realize, but uh, the dog can say, "Hey, if I'm never put in the situation that I'm experiencing terror or anxiety, I will then not vocalize. I will not eliminate all over the house. I will not chew things up, etc." So we have this beautiful contract going. And what happens when you are talking about how expensive it is, if we break that contract, not only do we absolutely, as you said, you know, go backwards quite a bit, uh, we've just sort of proven to the dog that the scary stimulus, which in this case is a long time, we've just proven to them that it is indeed scary. And so they go all the way back.
0: What we need to remember. So so do you see that they don't believe you as easily the next time? Like that when you start, you go, okay, we're going to go back to step one. Are they even more resistant and saying like, no, like you fooled me once, shame on you, but you fool me twice, shame on me. Because my experience is they do. They're like, well, it was just a mistake. And I'm like, no, I empathetically, I understand, like I make mistakes all the time. But the cost to this dog is irrational and understandable. And it's why we caution so much against it. So is there any, do you have magic for me on any way to like start that repairing of that when it inevitably happens? Because we all do it.
2: We all do. And I think that there is, we have to distinguish between Did we make a mistake in our training and push a little too far versus did we scare the tar out of the dog? So if I've worked diligently and my dog is able to handle a 10 minute absence and I think I can run to the to the post office and back within 10 minutes. But lo and behold, I got stuck in traffic or behind a red light and uh, it took me 20 minutes to get home. Is that scared the tar out of the dog or is that more repairable right and um, I think surprisingly and while I completely agree with you like these errors should be avoided at all costs they happen and one thing that never ceases to amaze me is how beautifully resilient dogs can be now that isn't to say that we should be pushing them by any stretch of the imagination. But it is amazing that if we give our dogs a break, you know, said "Oh, I went over a couple of minutes today and my dog got a little nervous, and we say, okay, you know, that contract that we have, we're going to go back and we're going to reestablish that you, you do have trust, that like these absences are safe. So we'll go back to those two-minute absences if that's what we need to do or, or, or less or whatever it is appropriate for the dog. So rebuilding is indeed possible, but it is so much better both for us as well as for the dog if we're not zigzagging and having to rebuild along the way, right? Because you're, you're absolutely right. We, we sort of lose that confidence or that trust in the process or the dog can
0: uh, and which makes it harder to rebuild as we move forward so can you talk a little bit about how to help families like strategies that can be used to help families integrate living with the dog with separation anxiety and not pushing them over a threshold because I think that's why it feels impossible to families because they're like I can't be here all the time yeah, and that
2: whole it's not forever, it's for right now is something that we need to sort of remind our clients quite regularly, right? Because you're going to have that dog hopefully for 16 years. So taking these couple of months of rearranging some scheduling is, I feel, just worthwhile to do now as, as opposed to having to struggle yourself and your dog for the next 15 or more years. I think that with a lot of behaviors, but separation anxiety in particular, I think that it is important that we create a village. And that village can be made up of so many different individuals, right? It could be friends, family, neighbors. Uh, it, it, It could be um, you know, your your second cousin removed that uh, sprained his ankle and therefore isn't working for the next few weeks and he can hang out with your dog, right? I mean, we, we just need to get, we're only limited by our creativity in finding resources to help. And I think one of the best ways to look at uh, managing a separation anxiety dog is to say, okay, what are my go-to things that I, that I absolutely must do. I must go to the pharmacy. I must uh, get groceries. I must, you know, and for some people, I must work, right, <laughs> away from the home. And and really look at that calendar and say, okay, these are all the things that I need to take care of. Now, who can fill in and be uh, my dog sitter during those hours or those days or these times? And even beyond that, having an emergency backup, right? So when the neighbor uh, who was going to come over has a sick child, who's the next person on the list? And I'll tell you a story because I think this bodes beautifully to the creativity. Um, I hear from people all the time, well, my dog doesn't like daycare, so I don't know what else to do. And, you know, daycare, sure, it's an option for some dogs, but it's not the option for all dogs for management. And it's also potentially very expensive for a lot of people. Um And I want people to remember that there are both low cost and no cost resources out there. So we had a client in Wichita, Kansas, and she had just moved there. She knew no one. She hadn't even started her job yet. And her dog was really struggling with separation anxiety. And she said, I haven't even met my neighbors. I can't ask them to come over and babysit my dog, you know. And so we thought, okay, how are we going to find the right resources for her? What we did uh, was created a very compelling flyer with an adorable picture of her dog that explained just a little bit about what the dog was going through with, with respect to separation anxiety and that she was making a plea for help. And we had those flyers distributed by the drivers of Meals on Wheels. And they distributed those flyers to all the folks in the neighborhood that were homebound that were using the Meals on Wheels services. And you know what? It was incredible. Not only did she find some, you know, amazing people that became lifelong friends for her and her dog. There was such overwhelming response that she had to create an online calendar so that people, you know, whoever got to the calendar first was the one that got to watch the dog that day kind of thing. And I tell that story and not everyone's going to, you know, be able to, to let's say, have that resource. But, but those are the kinds of creative Directions that we need to go um, if we don't have the resources in our own friends, family, neighbors, etc. Uh, and then you know maybe finding those college students that you say, hey, I'll I'll put some goodies in my fridge and you get a quiet place to study and you can hang out with my dog, right?
0: Um, I love the the creative answers because a lot of times um, between grad students, I'm in a college town. So between grad students and retirees, we can almost always fill a gap for a family that has a gap. And often I'm always stunned how, how often that results in like lifelong friendship.
2: It's it's actually been one of the many, many joys of working with separation anxiety clients is that, you know, well, as we are building that village, the the number of people that we get to meet and come into our fold is just it's a gift it's beautifully enriching i had a um a client who is also a trainer and she uh rescued her dog um from thailand um years ago and uh when after the tsunami um and She reached out to the Thai community here in the San Francisco Bay area and said, you know, here's this dog I've rescued from Thailand. He's got separation anxiety. I need help. And every week when she would go, she, she has a facility, she would teach classes and and the dog couldn't come with her just because she was teaching and stuff. Every week she would go teach classes. One of the many Thai families that she had, she had been in contact with would watch the dog and she would come home uh, come back to their house to pick him up and they always had these incredible spreads of Thai food waiting for her. And every week she would take these pictures of look at my new Thai family and what they what they uh, you know have made for me today and they've all become lifelong friends. and, and I have so many incredible relationships d- due to being part of someone's family, literally because our dogs are our families. Well, and
0: separation anxiety can be very isolating for families, right? right. Their world can start to get really small. So I think that's true of any anxiety work we're doing, right? If we have a dog who's afraid of strangers, it's very isolating. They're like, well, we can't have people over, and we can't do this, and we can't do that, and we can't go on vacation. And so the more can help families foster that, okay, we build from a place of the dog being comfortable and bonding. And yes, the circle is a little bit small in the beginning, but we make it bigger and more connected. Those relationships do come with it and they're not alone. Um, Lots of times the people who I get who want to help a separation anxiety family are people who've had a dog with excruciating separation anxiety and they know how important it is by the way they're also the best people of saying like you didn't cause this like this isn't a purebred problem this isn't a you spoiled your dog too much problem this isn't a you're not a big enough pack leader problem like none of that stuff is true leaving food doesn't necessarily help and in many cases is going to make it worse. Are there some other myths that you think surprised would surprise families to hear?
2: Oh gosh, there's there's so many myths and I love that you mentioned, you know, it's not because it happens to be a rescue dog versus a purebred dog and we we've got Pretty strong research on that um, about you know that it's rather indiscriminate, right? One of the interesting things about separation anxiety is there is so much interest in it from a research standpoint. It has been the number one research behavior issue in dogs in the last four decades. With um, insofar as applied animal behavior and veterinary behavior, so it is very heavily researched. Now, interestingly enough, from that research, we know a lot about what doesn't cause separation anxiety. We know a lot less about what does cause separation anxiety. Uh, in 2016-ish, they they actually. Uh, Found a um, haplotype, so a genetic marker that is associated with separation anxiety. So there's quite a possibility that we are seeing a genetic predisposition, which, as we say, is indiscriminate. It doesn't, it's not breed, it's not, you know, right. or shelter, or what have you, right? But in so far as myths, I think. That one is the biggest um, that you said, you know, I've caused my dog's separation anxiety. I'm spoiling my dog. I'm letting my dog sleep in the bed with me. I'm whatever it is. That is not true. They started researching uh, all of the, quote, spoiling behaviors in a study in 1991 uh, done by McCrave and, and colleagues. And that study included everything from things like letting the dog on the couch and giving them lots of treats and letting them sleep in the bed taking them with you on a lot of errands, et cetera, all the way through to like things like celebrating a dog's birthday, you know, is, 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 are you spoiling your dog? And they were, it was a very clear study that none of those, what we would consider spoiling behaviors. I don't consider them spoiling. I consider them family. That's what we do with our family <laughs> members. But That's right. Uh, But they showed that none of those uh, contributed to separation anxiety. And that study has been replicated over and over and over since then.
0: Only behavior professionals would misguidedly say, love your dog less, comfort your dog less, be less bonded. I understand because I've had a long career in dogs and I've heard all that stuff. I, I was taught all that stuff in the beginning. But, but one day there was a really well-meaning person who knows who it was who went, yeah, that doesn't actually make any sense. And, and I went, well, you're right. Like if my child fell and scared herself, I'm going to cuddle her and let her know she's okay. And that bad thing, if she got lost and thought I had disappeared off the planet, I would comfort her. I wouldn't worry that that's going to make her more afraid that I'm going to disappear. So I think sometimes trying, it can feel wrong. Like I own that, that, that a family does, families do struggle with, well, am I reinforcing fear? And so then we just have a, a bigger conversation about that.
2: Yeah. And we can reinforce behavior but we cannot reinforce emotion in the way. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I say that all the time. You're reinforcing a behavior, not an emotion. Emotion happens as a response to a particular situation. Behavior is what we can have put controls over, not emotions in and of themselves. So thank you so much for saying that. The thing that I wanted to ask you about is granted that people don't cause separation anxiety in their dogs. I'm not going to argue that point. But my question for you is, is there things that they can do when raising a puppy to help the puppy learn some independence so the likelihood of separation anxiety is not as great?
2: I'm so appreciative of the way you worded that question, and I'll tell you why. I get asked so often, "Well, what can we do to prevent separation anxiety? And in my opinion, we cannot prevent something that we do not know the cause of. Yes, at least at this time, right? We can't. And if we use the word prevention and we say do A, B, C, D, and E, and the dog still ends up with separation anxiety, we are in a situation where we are now owner blaming, right? Right. And I really feel strongly about the fact that owner blaming just needs to stop, just needs to stop. So can we optimize dogs for alone time success? I sure think we can. Um, will it be a hundred percent across the board if we do everything right? Will the dog in, for sure not get separation anxiety? No, no. How many, you know, with you is with, with doing a lot of fear, how many dogs Do you know that as puppies, we're socialized to every type of, uh, appropriately socialized to every type of situation, but still have fear issues, right? So we have to remember that. I think that with puppies, and even with newly acquired dogs, so, you know, an adult dog that you've just brought home from the shelter or something like that, we want to give them a metaphorical soft place to land. So we're not going to say, "Hey, puppy, you're cute. Gonna spend the weekend with you and go to my 10-hour work day on Monday." Like we we have to be careful with the exposure to alone time, so that the exposure that they receive early on. Is a positive experience, or or if if nothing else, at least at least needs to be a neutral experience, right? It cannot be a scary experience. So incrementally increasing uh, the amount of alone time that a puppy experiences, I think, is important. And in the beginning, really just you know you mentioned earlier, walking to the you know out to the mailbox, right? Just those little bits of exposure can do wonders for puppies learning to be left alone successfully.
0: Well, and not expecting them to work through their panic and grow out of it. Right. I I tell people all the time, when I bring a puppy home, an itty bitty puppy, they're in bed with me. And I know that that breaks every dog trainer rule. And I don't care because if, because I want that puppy secure in the attachment And I will sleep lightly enough that if they squirm around, I can totally take a puppy outside, let them potty, tell them they're brilliant, and we can all go back to bed and get some sleep. What I don't want is a puppy crazy stressed out because, you know, I mean, I see families who start out with the puppy in the crate of the bedroom and the puppy squawks. So they move it out to the garage and the puppy screams all night. And I'm like, yeah, that might not that might not have been super. I mean, yes, you got a good night's sleep, but I'm not sure that that was super helpful to that puppy feeling secure in their environment and in the world and in our ability to help them be successful. Like what what were they learning through that? And and I honestly, some dogs make it through that just fine. Like I don't know that we know what makes one do one way or the other. And I am sensitive to, I'm not blaming that family for wanting a good night's sleep. It's just, I'm going to try to be careful about what lessons I'm teaching that puppy right from the beginning. And I'm going to screw it up. I'm just going to screw it up a different way each time.
2: <laughs> I love that. Yeah. um, You know, you had asked about myths. I mean, that's probably one of the most pervasive that even in you know child psychology some somehow still exists today about letting them cry it out you know and um, I mean they've shown both in children and to an extent in the research in dogs that letting them cry it out has long-term psychological and physiological um, impacts for for many many species um, dogs included. So I'm glad you brought that one up. Um, it's, it's interesting that people think, well, I'm toughening up the dog or something of that nature, right, by letting them work, work it out or work through it. When in actuality, um, the way to create a, a secure and resilient animal is to meet their needs. And when I say meet their needs, one of those is feeling safe. Well, we
0: prefer that, right, like right, right. We do our best learning from a position of safety. none of us like the instructor who you know shrieks at us and tells us we're morons, like nobody, nobody nobody likes that remarkably, so or is you know trying to do it in the middle of an earthquake, right like it it doesn't it doesn't work terribly well. What myths do you hear about that inhibit a family? from moving forward, getting some great support and working through this with their dog? What myths do you think are the most detrimental that that families just throw their hands up and go, this is just how it's going to be?
2: Yeah, I think <clears throat> think you'll be surprised at my answer. Some of the myths that are out there that really break my heart are uh, fall into the category of, you know, try this quick tip. Try this quick fix this, you know, uh, you know, things like, um, um, you know, leave the TV on or leave an article of clothing that smells like you. None of those are going to harm the dog um, per se. But the longer that the client, the, the owner waits to help their dog, I mean, dogs, well, most animals become professionals at what they rehearse. And if the dog is rehearsing fear daily, they're going to be professional at that uh, at, at, with their fear. And and so the longer, the more of these quick tips that keep pushing out the proper behavior modification that is required, um, I think those are the ones that worry me the most because there isn't, at least to this day at this time, there isn't something that can just, you know, fix a dog's fear in, in an instant.
0: Right. The way to Kong and peanut butter doesn't fix it.
2: Surprisingly not. <laughs> it
0: doesn't trick them. If I leave a sock outside the bedroom door, they don't know that that's not really me. Right. And I always, I always have to laugh at that one. You know, when people
2: say leave, you know, leave an article of clothing that smells like you. The whole house smells like you. I, 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 like, like, I, I mean, these are dogs. They can smell, every, you know, how many parts per million. That, trust me, the house smells like you.
0: The, the one sock isn't going to do it. But you're not tricking them. No. They're, they're not dumb. They really aren't. And, and you're right my experience is that I agree with you that the more people try to do the quick fixes, the harder it is for us to get purchase on moving in the right direction because the dog is like, yeah, no, I smell what you're stepping in. Like you're going to try, like you're going to do the pull the, the tablecloth out from under the dishes trick and it leaves them hanging. Um. But yes, I would say that those rehearsals of like, we're going to try to fool the dog is, can be very, very detrimental and treating things more difficult.
2: You know, not only does it make treating things more difficult from, from the dog's perspective, one of the things that breaks my heart about a lot of these tips and tricks is we get clients coming to us, two, three, four months into the process of trying, you know, to leave the TV on, trying to leave the sock, trying some sort of, you know, over-the-counter chewable that is supposed to fix it all, you know, all these things. And by the time they get to us, they're not just emotionally tapped and their bandwidth is minimal, but they're financially tapped because they have bought every over-the-counter you know, thing and every you know spray that's supposed to calm, and and certainly not um, you know dishing any of those products. Uh, but I'm just saying, if you you know you can you can invest a lot of money on stuff that is not really going to help, and and then that emotional bandwidth becomes frayed, and then you're starting month two or month three or however long it is into the process at a deficit, as so is your dog. And so identifying the problem and starting to work on it appropriately from the get go, I think is the best thing anyone could do.
1: So Milena, can you maybe give our listeners two or three bullet points that you want them to take away? Like maybe what's what's a sure sign that your dog is suffering from separation anxiety and you should get help immediately? And or a few other things that you think is important for them to take away.
2: Sure, you know your first question there about what is a sure sign we're really lucky in this day and age you know when I first started working with separation anxiety, we didn't have zoom we didn't have standalone security in home cameras that you could buy for fifty dollars or less uh we didn't have the technology or not very readily to be able to observe our dogs when alone. I think that. As you had mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, that there are reasons that a dog, let's say, might be vocalizing or doing various behaviors uh, when alone. But and one of those reasons may very well be anxiety. And we need to identify that. And one of the ways to do that is by using a a camera of sorts or a, a tablet or a phone or something to be able to watch the dog when left alone. And I don't mean Leave the leave the camera going and and go out to dinner for four hours. I you know truly leave the dog for a few minutes and observe and preferably record because there's a big difference in watching a dog who is bored and chewing on a table leg uh, or maybe barking at the squirrels outside the window and a dog that is truly distressed. And we can see that difference very readily in a video. So I think first and foremost, get that video so that you can talk to your vet or your vet behaviorist, and you can talk to a professional trainer uh, and a practitioner that works um, um, closely with separation related behaviors. So, I mean, I think that's a, that is a starting point. Um, The other thing is to have to to, to be grace, gracious with yourself as the as the pet parents. This is not easy. And there are a lot of emotions that run high when we're getting, you know, threats from the landlord, or there's, you know, poop all over the carpet every time we come home, or there's destruction to the back of the door, or things of that nature, right? Emotions run high. We get frustrated. We get angry. And that's okay. As long as somewhere in us, we also have the understanding and empathy that the animal is suffering. They're not doing this. They're not giving you a hard time. They're having a hard time, right? So,
0: right. They're not, they're not being spiteful, they're Correct. not being naughty, they're panicked
2: they're panicked they're panicked and that
0: and honestly like that can be really hard when you're the one having to clean up the mess or make the repairs or try to figure out where you're going to live in a market where finding you know a place to live is difficult and expensive so i mean you're in san francisco like <laughs> good luck with that right yeah. so so i mean that like i don't i'm not sh- i mean i get people that their housing is in jeopardy over the dog is making noise um and again like oh i i do i honestly kind of dread those cases cuz it's not going to be fast so you know if it's a college student there's sometimes it feels a little bit impossible when i know it's not it just means we've got to get creative um but i'm so excited that you're you, you have trainers who can work remotely and that i love hearing that remote's better in this case because it doesn't muddy the waters and it also means that people can get help in many cases where they necessarily wouldn't otherwise because we can all dial in from wherever
2: absolutely it's um it's amazing how different what I do today is um versus what I did 21 years ago when we didn't have remote tools and um the unbelievable impact on the efficiency and effectiveness uh, and the resolution rate for separation anxiety versus what we were doing, you know, 20 some odd years ago, because we were, we were being reactive. We would, let's say, leave a video camera behind and watch the dog and then come back and watch the video. And we'd be like, oops, I blew it. I left, I should have come back at, you know, seven minutes instead of 10 minutes. And, and so we were being reactive. And now we can be proactive. We can literally watch the dog in real time and say, she's starting to look a little uncomfortable. I'm going to stop it right now. Well, that's terrific.
1: Um, thank you so much for joining us. Melinda. This has been a, a really beneficial uh, podcast. I think there's been a lot of great information for our listeners. We'll make sure that both of your books are listed on our um, webpage so that people have quick access to that. And, uh, if there's a uh, contact information that you'd like to leave, we'll be happy to put that up there too. Um, so this has just been terrific. I kind of feel like we could go on for a very long time, but we are running over time as it is. So maybe we need to have you back to talk some more about, uh, separation anxiety, because this is a big issue and there's a lot of things that, uh, you know we just sort of scratched the surface with so thank you so much for for
2: joining us on on your family dog. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it and I and I do hope that anyone listening takes a few nuggets of of understanding away and knows that again this is temporary and you can do it.